Our text for today is from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 7 to 15 and 21 to 24. Amos was a prophet in the 8th century in Israel. Doom, always a good way to start. (laughs) Doom to you who turn justice into poison and throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. Who summons the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. This one's name is the Lord who causes destruction to flash out against the strong. So that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who judges at the city gate. And they reject the one who speaks the truth. Truly, because you crush the weak and because you tax their grain, you have built houses of carved stone. But you won't live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you won't drink their wine. I know how many are your crimes and how numerous are your sins, afflicting the righteous, taking money on the side, turning away the poor who seek help. Therefore, the one who is wise will keep silent. In that time, it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of heavenly forces, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps... The Lord God of heavenly forces will be gracious to what is left of Joseph. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God be in our listening. God be in our understanding. Amen. Such a beautiful verse there at the end, if you skip all the rest. They didn't put that on the monument to Martin Luther King in Montgomery, just that last verse. Let justice roll down like water. Yes, please. Although we should acknowledge that water rolling down 
is not always a good thing. As I studied this passage this week, I was in conversation with my friend and colleague, Jenny McDevitt, and she and I traded ideas back and forth. In that exchange, she told me the story of the winter of 2014. The way she tells it, back in the winter of 2014, when she lived in Kansas, she woke one night out of a contented sleep to the sound of dripping, a lot of dripping. Dripping that didn't sound like it was hitting a hard surface, but more water which meant it had been dripping long enough to form puddles. Jenny lived in Kansas. I have never experienced winter in Kansas, but I am told it is cold. Winter in Kansas means ice, a lot of ice. So much ice that it sometimes fills your gutters freezes, and then melts, refreezes, melts again, and continues this until that slush of ice and water has nowhere to go except in your house. When Jenny got out of bed and went to investigate, she found not one, not two, not three, but six waterfalls in her living room. A very kind church member named Steve came over and spent several hours crawling around her roof with an ice pick, a hammer, and a shovel. And when he came inside to warm up after he had sorted things out for her, he taught her what he said was the most important physics lesson of owning a home. Water will always find a way. Water will always find a way, which is bad news for buildings, but might be good news for our world. When Amos was active in Israel, it was a time of growing prosperity. But that wealth wasn't shared equitably. The rich were getting much richer, and the poor were getting much poorer. The old systems that had been in place for hundreds of years since the time of the wilderness that prevented people from accumulating too much or falling too far into debt, those systems had fallen apart. That is why Amos is so worked up. He says their worship is empty and even offensive. And God's not upset because the choir sang off key where the liturgist flubbed his lines, where the preacher talked too long, which would never happen. 
It's not that there was anything boring or bad about their services. In fact, it seems like it may have been the opposite. Their worship felt pretty good, and they felt pretty good about themselves when they got done. We've talked the last two weeks about abundant life taking shape in community where all are welcome and no one is extra or unneeded. And it is a community of compassion where we are blessed and we bless others. In other words, a community of love. But if that love stops when we walk out those doors in about half an hour, then what we're doing here is pointless. And if we carry it with us out those doors, but we only share it with folks who are like us, what we're doing is false, empty. True Christian community, the kind that leads to abundant life, overflows with love. And loving our neighbors means being concerned about whether they have what they need for life, abundant life. Love is justice. It is being concerned with the well-being of all our neighbors. That's the kind of faith we want to nurture. That's what we're trying to learn to do when we gather each week. My friend Jenny says that the prophet Amos would have liked the philosopher Kierkegaard. And in particular, Kierkegaard's three stages of faith, which, of course, are not actually linear. Nothing is in life, as far as I can tell. But we circle through these, go back and forth, have different moments of maturity and struggle. And Kierkegaard says the first stage of faith is concerned with freedom above all else. Freedom to seek the satisfaction of our desires, our hungers. And the second stage of faith moves beyond that. Instead of just being concerned with our own freedom to do what we wish, we become concerned about what is the right thing to do for others, for the world. What is right at the right time in the right place, which is good, but it is not ultimate because there is a third stage of faith. And in the third stage, we don't put ourselves first and we don't put right action first. We come to put love 
first. We don't linger over rules and scorekeeping. We fall into the mystery of God and the depths of love. We need that because if we get stuck in the second stage, just obsessed with what is most right, the best way, the best policy, the right approach, then our work for love in the world grows brittle very quickly. And we splinter and divide, ever seeking the more right thing to do. The second stage is deeply concerned with what is right. But a mature faith is concerned with what is righteous, which to our ears sounds kind of like the same thing. And if anything, righteous sounds more judgmental than right. But in biblical thought, there is a difference between the two. Being right, meaning you have the correct answer, which is fine as long as you can resist saying, told you so. But being righteous in the biblical sense is relational. It's about loving God and loving each other and fulfilling our obligations to each other. Being righteous means prioritizing relationships. And anyone who has ever been in a relationship of any kind knows that sometimes the right thing to do is to give up worrying about being right. Right? At my last congregation, I shared, um, I once told them that I know the correct way to load a dishwasher. You can ask me afterwards. Never mind that Joseph does all of the dishes in our family, and they all come out clean. I still knew the right way to put those bowls and that silverware. It was obvious. After the service, Trish came up to me. Trish had married her high school sweetheart, Jean, some 40 years before, and they seemed like they still actually liked each other. <laughs> Trish said, Sarah, let the dishwasher go. <laughs> if we have to choose between being right and righteous in our relationships, for the love of God, says Amos, for the love of God, choose righteousness. Prioritize relationships with God and with each other. <laughs>
because that is our best chance at seeing justice truly roll down over this earth. Sometimes we think of prophets as people with the magical ability to see the future. That's not really a prophet's gift. A prophet's gift is the ability to see the present with surprising clarity. And because they can see what is really going on, they are able to anticipate the consequences, what will happen from how we're living our lives. That's why Amos is filled with chapter upon chapter of woe and doom and gloom because he is troubled by what he sees around him. But he also knows that with God, trouble is never the last word. Prophets see life as it is. They also hold out for us what life could be with love at the center. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And for a moment, you can tell that this prophet of doom and gloom has caught a glimpse of what could be. Water always finds a way. I am terrified of floods. I always have been irrationally terrified. But I would love to see a flood reshape our world, sweep away so much, and restructure how we relate to one another. Unfortunately, change doesn't tend to happen that way very often. It usually takes longer, which leaves me in despair sometimes. But think of the Grand Canyon. The Colorado River carves away about a foot of rock every 200 years. That's maybe five inches in our lifetimes. But it has been doing that for the past five to six million years, cutting down through sandstone and shale and limestone and now hard, crystalline, igneous, and metamorphic rock. It's not fast, but it is beautiful and inevitable. Water always finds a way. No matter how we try to dam it or channel it or control it, water finds a way. It goes 
the way it wants to go, ultimately. It might seem a million years away. It might seem impossible. But like love, water always finds a way. And our call is to let ourselves be swept along with it. Amen.